glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to fully see and savor the beauty of the gospel this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning. The theology of Paul's prayer, the content of Paul's prayer, and the example of Paul's prayer. The theology of Paul's prayer, the content of Paul's prayer, and the example of Paul's prayer. So point number one, the theology of Paul's prayer. Uh, In verse 13 of chapter one, Paul has already told us how people are saved, right? They hear the gospel the the word of salvation, and they believe it. And when they hear it and believe it, they're saved and they're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. But what I think we see in these verses is Paul talking about the fact that that's really just the beginning. You see, conversion experience is just a one-time experience. It's a one-time event, but growing in our understanding of the gospel is something that we spend the rest of of our lives doing. To be truthful, it's probably something that we'll spend the rest of our eternities doing. You, you don't ever graduate from your ability to grasp the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Now, I think that this truth is implicit in Paul's prayer in verses 17 and 18. Let's go back and look at those just one more time. I know we just read them, but our spiritual memories are like dory. They're just like a goldfish, okay? He says that he's praying and he's asking God Right? The, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of what wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? Well, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And then he goes on to talk about a couple of other things. But he's saying, listen, there's something that's true of you now that you've been saved. There's something that's true of you now that you belong to Jesus, and you've only just begun to grasp it. You've only just begun to understand what it means that you have been saved by Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm asking God to give you more and more gospel light. He's saying, he's saying, I want the eyes of your hearts to be opened. That's a weird phrase. And if you grew up in the church, you may be having a youth group or church camp flashbacks right now, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. We're doing this because I want to. Okay, guys, that wasn't very good. All right. But here, we, we, we're going to find out what that phrase means, right? Paul uses two images from our physical bodies to illustrate these, these spiritual phenomenon. The first one is our physical eyes. And if you think about our eyes, what they do is they receive light. They receive light, they receive pictures from the outside world. And so Paul is saying, 
yeah, uh, you have spiritual eyes that need to perceive gospel light. And then he talks about our heart, right? Our heart is at the core of us. It, it does kind of the most important thing. It keeps that fluid filled with oxygen pumping throughout our bodies. The reason why every person dies ultimately when you break it all down is from a lack of oxygen, right? And the heart is responsible for that. It's at the core of our being. And so Paul uses that phrase the same way the rest of the Bible uses that phrase to talk about the core of who we are spiritually. The heart is the seat of our mind, will, and emotions. And so Paul, uh, mixing metaphors like only he can do, he says, I'm asking God to open up the spiritual eyes of your spiritual heart so that at the deepest possible level of who you are, you will be able to comprehend more of the gospel. We're going to come back to the points in particular that he wants them to understand. He says he wants them to understand three things, hope, inheritance, and power. And we're going to come back to that in point two. But in verses three through 14 from last week, we already saw that the Ephesians have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? And we talked about that. We talked about election, predestination, redemption, being sealed with the Spirit. We talked about all these blessings, And now, in verses 17 through 23, Paul is saying, I'm praying to God and asking him that he will help you to understand what those spiritual blessings actually are. I don't want you to just have an elementary understanding. I want you to grow in your understanding of these spiritual blessings. I have an illustration to kind of help uh, bring this to life here, but it's a jungle illustration. I know you're thinking, Sean, we get it, you've been to the jungle, but guys, I'm just pulling from the reservoir of my own life here, okay? And it just works so well. When you're in the jungle at night, there are no artificial lights, right? So like I tried to think of a a non-jungle. I was like, Sean, you got to come up with an illustration that's not from the jungle. Maybe we could go to like Lawrence County, but no, 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 no. Even in the wilderness, like even as far as the wilderness that I've been in America, maybe Wheeler Wild, I don't know. But as, even when you go as far out into the wilderness, as, at least as I've been in the United States, you can still see like a faint glimmer of light in the sky, right? The city lights all around you still tend to light up the sky. But in the jungle, it's not like that. When you're out in the jungle in the middle of the light, in the middle of the night, there are no lights anywhere. And so as you rise up, as people in the jungle tend to do early in the morning, 3, 3.34, to go out to your chakra, the field, uh, you can't really see anything. On nights where there's a full moon, uh, there's, it's, it's helpful, but most nights it's really, really dark. Even when your eyes adjust, you can't really make out your environment around you. But then the sun begins to rise. Right? And I remember mornings where I would, like, riding my motorcycle, all I could see was the light in front of me on the dark road, but then the sun would rise. And over the course of an hour, two hours, you would slowly be able to perceive the environment around you, right? You would begin to make out all the details. And then as the sun was fully out, you could make out your environment with, uh, in all of its brilliance. I think that this is a pretty good picture of us as Christians, as new believers, as immature young believers, we are comprehending these gospel realities by the moonlight. We're only barely making out the details, the silhouettes. But then slowly, God's spirit of wisdom and revelation reveal more and more of the details and contours of the gospel to us. Now, this illustration uh, is is. Almost good, except for that it's basically entirely backwards. 
You see, in this illustration, the problem isn't with my eyes and my ability to perceive. The problem is with the environment. But the way that Paul talks about our ability to comprehend the gospel is the exact opposite. He says, listen, the gospel is on full display. Jesus Christ is resurrected. It's there for anyone who can see it. The unconverted can't see it because they don't have eyes to see, but you have eyes to see, and you can only barely grasp it. It's like you were blind your whole life, and then you got your eyes fixed, but they're just now learning how to work again. And so I'm praying for the Spirit to apply ointment to your eyes to be able to help you to really see the fullness of these gospel realities. One of the things that I think you should take away from this is that it seems like in the mind of Paul, our biggest need as Christians is not new blessings. Paul isn't praying and asking God that we would have more and new and different blessings. Paul is praying and asking God that he would help the believers to understand the blessings that they already have in Christ. Entire careers, books being written, platforms uh, being stood upon, conferences being held, where people are, you know, TBN teachers going up with bad haircuts, all of it just for people to try to tell you that you need a new blessing and how you can acquire it. But it seems like Paul's not really concerned with that. Paul says you've already been elected and predestined and adopted and redeemed and sealed for the day of deliverance. You need to begin to plumb the depths of the blessings that you have in Christ if you want to live lives uh, that are glorifying to his name if you want to have joy and peace and prosperity. You know, I think that the members of this church know the gospel, right? I try to make sure of that in our elders, uh, in our members' meetings, we ask members, you know, and they very anxiously give the answers, you know, like it's a very tense time, yeah. But we try to make sure that everyone who joins this church knows the gospel. But, but do we really know it? Right, like do we really grasp it? We may know our theology, but do we really, really, really know it? Do we know it in our bones? Do we know it in the core of our beings, or do we only know it intellectually? In Spanish, there are two verbs to our one English verb, to know, right? And they're saber and conocer. The Spanish verb saber, to know, is when you speak of knowing of something, right? You have information about something. You, so I, I, I've never been to Madrid but I saber de, I know of it. Yo sé de Madrid, okay? It's, it's not experiential, it's not relational, it's, it's just informational. And then you have the word conocer. And this is the verb that's used to communicate intimate, personal, experiential knowledge. So I can talk about a celebrity that I've never met and I would say saber. But if I talk about a person that I know like Chancellor, I would say conocer, yo lo conozco, I know him. Because I've actually met him, I have an intimate experience with him. So much of our experience as Christians and brothers and sisters, we are at danger of this, in danger of this in this particular church, is we pursue knowledge of God, that first kind of knowledge. We want to make sure that we have our theological P's and Q's all lined up, and that's good. But that knowledge is not the knowledge that Paul is talking about here when he's praised that we would grow in our wisdom and knowledge of God and the gospel. He's talking about an experiential knowledge, an intimate knowledge, a personal knowledge, a relational knowledge, a knowledge that actually bears fruit in our lives. And this can only happen with the Spirit's help. 
This can only happen by the power of the Spirit's illumination. That's why the text, when, when Paul refers to the Spirit, he refers to him as the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That word revelation, it doesn't just refer to uh, books about when your wife is going to disappear after a trumpet blows, right? Revelation is referring to a revealing of something, right? This is God has to tell you, you, you can open a book and study it, but you can't really know it unless God gives you that knowledge. So, you may be asking, how does the Spirit of God open our eyes to be able to more fully see and comprehend and love these gospel truths? Well, he's doing it in a thousand different ways, none of which you may be recognizing when he's doing it. He does it through ordinary means like prayer and Bible reading and gathering with the saints. He does it through time with your family members and in the workplace. He does it through suffering. He does it in so many different ways. But regardless of how God may be doing it in your life at any particular moment in time, the thing that I want you to see is that the way that the Spirit of God is most active in your life is by revealing to you the truths that already belong to you. I think it's safe to say that you can kind of summarize Paul's theology here in that he wants the power, the Spirit of God to illuminate the gospel of God for the people of God. Point number two, the content of Paul's prayer. Now earlier, I told you that Paul wants God to give the Ephesians a deeper knowledge of three things, hope, inheritance, and power. Now I want you to know that I'm not gonna hang out on these first two very much at all. I'm just gonna very lightly touch on them for two reasons. Uh, one reason is because Paul doesn't really hang out on them. They're almost like something, you know how like preachers like to give examples of things in threes, you know, or they like to say three words. It just feels nice. I wonder if there's a little bit of that going on here. Probably not. But he doesn't really touch much on hope and inheritance, and, uh, which leads me to my second reason. Uh, I think he doesn't touch much on hope and inheritance because he spends a pretty significant time talking about that later in the letter. It almost feels like verses... Uh, it almost just feels like all of chapter one is kind of an introductory uh, portion of the letter that presents themes that are gonna be developed throughout the rest of the letter. So when we get to chapter two and verse 12, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about hope. So I'm not gonna say much about it here. Uh, inheritance, I think we're gonna talk about that pretty substantially in chapter five. So again, I'm not gonna talk about it much here. And we're gonna spend more time talking about the third point, power. Now having said that, let me just touch on each of them briefly. The first thing that Paul wants the Ephesians to have a better understanding of, and what I think God wants us to have a better understanding of, is the hope that we have in Christ. You see that in the second half of verse 18. It says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, right? And I think that that simply means uh, this, the future salvation of our souls and all of the good that is promised within that, right? It's not just that we're not gonna go to hell, it's that we get to go and be with Jesus forever and everything good that comes to our souls because of that. I also tried to, last week, give you a sense of the grounding that we have for that hope. Do you remember I, I talked about assurance? And I said, listen, your assurance isn't grounded in your works. It's not grounded in anything related to you. It's grounded in the fact that before the foundations of the world were laid, that God elected you, predestined you, and adopted you, right? And that's the grounding of your hope. I don't think I can do a better job of that today. So with that being said, we're going to come back to this in chapter 2. 
The second point that Paul wants us to understand here is inheritance. Now, there is a difference of opinion among interpreters as to how to best understand this second point, right? Where he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So now, some interpreters, like John Stott, who I would, you know, feign to disagree with, he says that this should be understood as referring to us as believers, our inheritance, right? And that makes sense in light of what you see in chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 1, verse 14. There you see Paul is talking about us as believers in the inheritance that we have uh, with God. The only problem with that is that in verse 18, Paul refers to his inheritance, right? And I think that that word his is in reference to God. Now, if you're used to thinking about us and our inheritance, this may not make much sense to you, but as you read the pages of Scripture, you see that actually this is a very common way for God to talk about his people. He talks about his people as his inheritance. So I just, I'm going to give you two examples from the Old Testament. One from Deuteronomy. It says, but the Lord God has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, right? There's something special about the people that God loves, and he views them as his inheritance. In Psalm 33, 12, the psalmist says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people that he chose for his inheritance, Moreover, this seems to accord with what Paul says in 1.4. Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and then he tells us the reason why, the purpose for that choosing. It says that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the reason why God elected us was so that he would have a holy and blameless bride that he would receive, right? He's almost like saying, hey, I'm choosing my inheritance. I'm choosing my bride. And you see see this theme picked back up in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul talks about the bride and he uses the same language, holy and without blemish. And the bride is going to be presented to him as this gift, right? As an inheritance of sorts. So if this... If this interpretation is correct, then I think that Ephesians chapter 1 teaches two really amazing complementary truths. On the one hand, we as believers have an inheritance that God is saving for us in heaven. And he's already given us the down payment, the Holy Spirit, until the day that we acquire possession of it. And also, when we get to heaven, God will view us as his inheritance. Right? There's, there's no need to pit the who loves who more question Uh, to to set that question out, right? The fact is, is that we love God and and we're gonna enjoy him forever and we're gonna view him as as our inheritance and he's gonna view us in much the same way. Now, I really, really, really would love to hang out here and just kind of plumb the depths of this, but I wanna move on because I wanna spend the majority of our time in point two talking about this third aspect that Paul is asking God to help the Ephesians understand about their salvation, and that's power. In verse 19, Paul says that he's asking God to help the Ephesians to understand, quote, the immeasurable greatness of his power, end quote. 
immeasurable greatness. This is superlative language, right? Immeasurable, what does that mean? Well, it means it can't be measured. Okay, well, that's kind of like infinity. It's a lot. It's something that you can't really wrap your mind around. And this language is superlative. If you don't know what that means, it's like, it's when, like, when you use language that communicates something to the nth degree. It's like, I absolutely, positively cannot stand and detest uh, Cheerios. Okay, whatever. That's superlative language. You're trying to go over the top to communicate something about what you're talking about. And it makes sense that Paul is communicating in the superlative about the power of God because what he's trying to do is he's trying to help you see that there's something uniquely powerful about the power of God. And you have to use superlative language to do that. I mean, it's pretty self-evident. It's obvious that God's power is powerful, right? That's just kind of, it just makes sense. But what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to get you to see that God's power is not like anybody else's power. It's not like any other kind of power. It's like Paul is saying, hey, the power of God is more powerful than any other power. You tracking? And so he uses this grandiose language in order to accomplish that. But then he continues. He talks about this tremendous power and then he says, towards us who believe. So this power that God is putting on display He's putting it on display by working it in us. That is how he's showing it off to the world. Okay, Paul, you've used this superlative language about the powerful power of God's power. But power is such an abstract concept, right? Uh, how, how can I see this power? Is there something that you can point to? Is there some example, some picture of the strength of your might that you can give us or the strength of God's might that you can give us to help us understand what you're talking about here and that's where we come to the second half of verse 19 and following according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what does it mean that God is powerful? Do you want to understand, better grasp this power of God that's been put on display in your life? Well, here's where you need to look. You need to look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and you need to look at his throne as he reigns on high in heaven. That is the picture of God's power. There, there is no lower place for a person to be than to be in the grave. And there's no higher place for a person to be than to have rule and dominion over every person on earth. When you think of power, if I were to ask you to describe something that you think is powerful, what might you describe? You might go full John Lennon, you know, love, man. It's the most powerful force in the universe, right? Maybe you would talk about uh, an empire that dominated the world for centuries. You would think about Persia or something like that. Maybe you would point to the hydrogen bomb, which is, in a matter of seconds, able of, capable of creating a megadeth, you know, a million people gone like that. I once heard a doctor say that to kill is easy, but to give life is impossible. 
We don't have that within our power. And I think that that is what we see here in this text. To take a man who is dead, and I mean really dead. I don't mean like he stopped breathing for a minute or two. I don't mean that he has a a light, thready pulse or that he's basically dead but still has some brain activity. I mean to take a man who is really and truly dead and to raise him from the grave. That is the greatest picture of power that we as human beings with our finite minds can possibly conceive of. I think that God has chosen not to make it a regular thing to use his power to bring men back from the dead so that when he raised his son from the grave, we would all go, huh, wow, that is powerful. God gives life and he takes it away and he can give it back whenever he wants to. And he does it on very, very rare occasions, right? Like Lazarus. And even that was meant to point forward to what was gonna happen with Jesus. And he does that so rarely because if it happened more often, it would seem ordinary. It would become familiar. People just rising from the graves. One of the reasons why the resurrection is so difficult for us to grasp is because we don't ever see it. The account of people rising from the grave in Matthew 18 is so difficult for us because people don't do that. And God raised his son as a demonstration of his power. And not only did he raise him from the grave, He seated him in the heavenly places from the lowest possible position in the universe to the highest possible position. And he's not just above, right? The text uses more superlative language here. It says that he's far above every ruler, every king, every authority. Now you just take a moment and you just think of some kind of power, some kind of authority Think about a, a physical power, you know, like the guys who would come and blow up the airbags in your, in your things at school, the power team, okay? Think about a civil power. Think about a political power, a military power. Think about spiritual powers like demons and Satan. There is no kind of authority that can come into your mind that is not under the complete rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what confidence should we have in the God of the universe and that he raised his son from the grave and he seated him above everything and everyone and he now rules and reigns from that position of prominence. Every enemy that you could possibly have as a child of God is no real enemy to you. Every enemy that you could possibly have, including sin and death, the ultimate authority and power to the human experience, that has been placed under his feet and done away with. He is supreme over these things. No addiction, no sin, no ruler, no anything, no prince, no principality is outside of the realm of his authority. The authority that our first Father Adam, lost in the fall, has been regained by the second Adam in the resurrection. And he's regained for us more ground than we lost. I don't know if you've ever watched any military history, but sometimes troops will like cross over into a land and then they'll be beaten back. And then sometimes when they finally surge forward again, they go back beyond the land that they had previously taken and then they take even more. Well, that's that's what God has done in Christ He took back the authority that Adam lost in the garden and then he gave him more authority. (coughs) 
You also see this connection between Christ's authority and the church in verse 23. Uh, that's one of those things, again, that I'm going to ask you to put a pin in for now because we're going to be looking at that for an extended period of time in chapter 3. Okay. If you want the eyes of your heart to better grasp the power of God in your life, you need to look at the empty tomb and look at Jesus as he rules from the throne on high. Now, you may be thinking, oh, this is great, but I still don't understand how this is towards me, right? That's the language that Paul uses. He says, you know, all this stuff about God's power, and then he says, towards you who believe. Well, that's coming next week. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul begins to show you how all of this power talk, how this matters for your life as a believer. So come back next Sunday at 1030. Now, before we wrap up, we need to look at point number three from this text. The example of Paul's prayer. The example of Paul's prayer. Uh, we rec recently finished a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and so I think we would be remiss uh, to pass by Paul's school of prayer here at the beginning of Ephesians without taking note of something about the way that Paul prays. Right, we should let that instruct us and teach us about our prayer lives. So with that in mind, I have five things that I want to point out about the way that Paul prays that I want you to consider and uh, emulate in your own prayer life. And I'm, I'm right there with you. We're doing it together. So number one, sub-point number one, Paul is constantly in prayer. He is constantly in prayer. Verse 16 says that Paul says, Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, right? So here's how I think that this works. I think that as often as Paul thinks about the Ephesians, he prays for them. He remembers them. He's praying for them on a regular basis. I have nothing super spiritual to say here. I just want us to be a church that is in the habit of regularly praying for each other. I want us to remember each other in our prayers. The reason why, you know, I call this the membership directory, but I kind of love it that Russell calls this the membership prayer guide because that's really how I want it to function for us. I want us to have this in our Bibles as we do our devotionals. I want this to be the second most important book in your life outside of the Bible. I want you to not just throw this in the floorboard of your car. You know, don't just kind of let this end up lost on your desk somewhere. These are the people that God has given you in this church family that you're supposed to love and that are loving you and we're all trying to help get to heaven together. You should pray for a whole bunch of things and a whole bunch of people who are outside of this little tiny church and we do that every Sunday in the pastoral prayer. We pray for people thousands of miles away. But concentrically, I think that we should think about the people in this church most often and remember them in prayer as often as we possibly can. Uh, I've commended to you before a regular habit of, you know, disciplined prayer, you know, of having a time where you just regularly pray, uh, but I would encourage you also to add to that to just maybe stop and remember, when, stop and pray for somebody when you remember them. So if you've ever gotten a text or an email or a phone call from me that says like, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm praying for you today, uh, that's not me being like a super pastor. That's just like, man, I thought about you today, and I thought, let me not waste this opportunity. Let me just pray for you. 
how much more productive would our prayer lives be for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ if we just made a tiny commitment like that? Hey, I'm thinking about Blaine or Sam today. Let me just take two minutes or 10 minutes and pray for them. Just this week, I was talking with a member of this church about a difficult situation with a family member. And I said, hey, have you prayed about this? Have you prayed for them? And that wasn't me being super spiritual or super wise. It was just me kind of trying to do this. And then also, because I know my own proclivity to think about someone and to feel like an emotional stirring for them and then to get back on social media, right? And, and then to not do the most important thing I can possibly do for a person, which is pray for them. I said, hey, let's just pray for them now before we go. Again, not super spiritual, not super wise, just trying to put into practice what we see here, okay? Number two, Paul prays different kinds of prayers. So here in, in Paul's prayer example, he tells the Ephesians, he says, not only am I giving thanks for you, but I'm also asking God to do something for you. So that's a prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer of intercession. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've tried to incorporate all different kinds of prayers in the life of this church. We have prayers of confession where we tell God about our sin. We have prayers of praise where we praise him for who he is. We have prayers of thanksgiving where we thank him for all that he's done for us. We have prayers of lament where we express grief and sorrow. We, we try to have it all in the life of this church because we see in scripture a rich example of uh, so many different ways that we can talk to God. We can talk to God when we're brokenhearted and depressed and when we're doubting and losing faith. We can talk to God when we are overflowing with joy in our salvation. We can ask him for things. We can go to him on behalf of other people. So what does your prayer life look like? Do you only praise or are you more morose and you only confess? You know, do you only, do, the, do you feel free to lament? Do you only pray for yourself? Or do you never pray for yourself and you only pray for other people because you feel bad praying for yourself? The wisdom of God has reserved for us in scripture a multitude of prayer models to cover every kind of communication experience we can have with God. So I want to encourage you to follow the example of Paul and pray more than one kind of prayer. Number three, Paul prays gospel-oriented prayers. Gospel-oriented prayers. Uh, this is going to be kind of the hammer portion of the sermon, okay? This is going to be the part that kind of makes us all feel bad, and it's on purpose. Uh, our prayers are vacuous. And I'm saying, our, I'm not just like, yeah, guys, it's me too. I mean, really, it's me too. Our prayers are so light and trite and they are not concerned with eternal things as much as they should be? If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe that every person that we know, every person we will meet at work, in school, on the sidewalk, is either going to go to heaven forever or go to hell forever, that should mean something about the way that we talk to God on behalf of people. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, it should mean something about the way that we go to God on their behalf. It should mean that we pray prayers that are more, that are more than for our Aunt Sally's hip or for safe travels. There is nothing wrong 
with Aunt Sally's hip or save travels, praying for these things. But I think when you, when you weigh and measure our prayers on balance, we pray more about those kinds of things than we do gospel-oriented things. When you listen to Paul's prayer here, you see that he kind of has, in light of his understanding of the gospel, a view of, of what people need most. And his view for what the Ephesians need most is to come to a deeper understanding of the gospel. If you stop and think about the kind of prayers that you pray for people, what do they sound like? The prayers that you pray for your own life, what do they sound like? Do they sound more like Brother Bill or like Jesus and the Apostle Paul? The greatest need for every single person that we come into contact with is that they come to know Christ. The greatest need of every single member in this church is that they come to a deeper understanding of who they are in relation to Christ. You know, it's one of those things where I think if you find yourself praying these kinds of gospel-saturated prayers, it kind of takes care of a whole bunch of other different prayers that you could be praying. Lord, please help them with their anxiety about getting money for a car. Well, that's, there's, that's a good thing to pray. But I think if you pray these kinds of prayers, those kinds of prayers kind of get wrapped up in it. Now, when I make a point like this, which is corrective in nature, I know I have to be very careful because you can say A and somebody hears you say not A, right? So when I say we need to have more gospel-saturated prayers, what you may be hearing me say is don't pray at all for Aunt Sally's hip. You may be hearing me say don't pray at all for our daily bread. Well, we just got through with the Lord's Prayer, right, where I just said, no, it's good and right and true to pray for those things. But I also pointed out that if you look at the Lord's Prayer and the six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, one of them has to do with kind of the, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians the trivial things, the things of this world, the things that aren't eternal, right? It's a prayer for bread. But the other five petitions are all massive, glorious, gospel kind of prayers. Your kingdom come, your will be done, hallowed be your name, forgive us of our debts, keep us from temptation, deliver us from evil, right? So Jesus does include the Aunt Sally's hip kind of prayers, but it's one out of six in the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Is that true for us in the way we pray is all I'm trying to ask you. So do pray for the safe travels. Do pray for Aunt Sally's hip. But just try to add more to that. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ and pray the kind of prayers that Paul prays for them in Ephesians chapter one. I think a good question for you to ask yourself about your prayer life is this. If I stop praying for people today, assuming that God hears my prayers and answers them, if I stop praying for people today, would anybody's eternity be affected? It's a good diagnostic. Number four, Paul tells people that he's praying for them. Right, that's what he's doing here in this letter. He says, hey guys, I, I'm hearing about you and I'm thankful for you and you should know that I'm praying for you, Right? He lets them know. And I don't think that this is a violation of Jesus' command to pray in secret. I don't think that that's what's happening here, right? The, the command to pray in secret is, is contra the hypocrites who pray in public so that they can be seen by men and be praised, right? They want all the honor and the glory from their fellow man. Well, I don't think that's the reason why Paul is telling them that he's praying for them. He's praying for them in secret, and then he's telling them about it to encourage them. Hey, I love you. I miss you. 
I'm hearing good things about you and what's happening in the church, and I just want you to know that when I think about you, I, I pray for you. I think that's the heart of what we see here with Paul. The second thing that he does, and this is, well, let me not confuse you there. The, the fifth thing that I'm going to point out here is that he tells them what he's praying for them. So Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm praying for you. He tells them the content of his prayers. So I think if this letter were to be written by a millennial today, it might be a text like the very text message that I got this morning from somebody that said, praying for you, bro right? Praying for, and that's great. Hey, that's the step in the right direction. You're doing number four. You're letting them know that you're praying for them. But, but Paul does so much more than that. He says, oh, I'm praying and I'm asking God to do something for you. I'm asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him that he'll open your eyes so that you can see all the beauties and truths of the gospel. He can't be there with them. So I think one of the reasons why he tells them is also to role model what prayer looks like, Right? I think this is one of the easiest ways that we can disciple people. If you have a healthy prayer life, one of the biggest ways that you can role model prayer is just tell other people what you're praying for them. You know? As a member of this church, you've probably had me say something to you, maybe after a Wednesday or maybe before a Sunday. We'll, we'll be talking about a fellow church member and I'll say like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. And then I'll tell you something about them and then I'll say, you should text them and tell them that you're praying for them. Let them know that you're praying for them. Right? In elders' meetings, every single elders' meeting, the pastors of this church take the time to pray for every single member of this church. And then not only do we pray for you, but we also take the time after we finish with those prayers and each of the elders texts somebody that they prayed for and says that they prayed for them and what they prayed for them. Right? That's what we do. Again, that's not us as elders being like super wise or super godly. That's us as elders going, man, uh, shepherding people is really hard. What do we do here? Ah, well, we'll just copy Paul, right? We'll just kind of do what he's doing. When I, pay, when I pray pastoral prayers on Sunday, actually when any pastor gets up here and prays a pastoral prayer on Sunday, we pray for other pastors in the area, but at least I know that when I do it, I try to text at least one of the pastors that I prayed for and tell them what I prayed as a means of encouragement to them. Again, just trying to emulate Paul here. Uh, I can think of no better example that I can point you to in role modeling these five points than our elder, Michael Wall, okay? Uh, Michael is constantly in prayer, and he prays all kinds of prayer. He prays gospel-oriented prayers, and he always reaches out to the people that he prays for, and he tells them that he's praying for them, and he tells them what he's praying for. February 28th, 8.29 a.m. I prayed for you this morning that just like David, your heart will be after God's heart, that you would be repentant, humble, reverent, trusting, loving, devoted, faithful, and obedient towards the Lord. That's a message that I got from Michael. February 20th, 6.03 a.m. Brother, I prayed for you this morning for even more boldness in your evangelism. I pray that you will speak of the gospel to everyone in your life, family, friends, neighbors, even strangers that you meet in public. I pray that you will have a deeper appreciation for God's ordained plan for the word to be used to save his people and even more confidence that his word will not return void. Raise your hand if you've gotten a text like that from Michael Wall in this church. I commend Michael as an example to you in this prayer. 
and maybe return the favor to him sometime. You know, it's kind of weird. I, I told Michael about that when I first got here and I kind of told it to the elders. I said, here's something that I like to do. I like to text people or email them and tell them that I'm praying for them. And then Michael just took that and ran with it and now he's making me look bad. <laughs> so back to our original question. What is the reputation of this church? I want to be honest with you, I don't really know. I'm not sure. This church has a long history. It's been here for 100 years. A lot of stuff has come before I got here. And there are certain pockets of Decatur and the surrounding areas that I don't really inhabit and I don't really know what people think about us. But I can tell you what I'm praying for this church. I'm praying that we will be an Ephesian church. That we will grow to have a reputation, not that we're trying to manipulate, not that we're trying to put out there for people to see us a certain way. I just hope that we're gonna try to be so faithful to Jesus Christ and be so true in loving one another that the people in this city will come to hear about what's happening in the life of this church. I recently sat down with a brother who has supported this church financially in the past and uh, he's very appreciative of what's going on here and, um, and he's, a, he's a big fan of mine. Um, and one of the things that he was talking to me about was he was saying, hey, you guys need to get some marketing. You guys need to like start sending out flyers. You need to, uh, you know, start doing like email blasts. Like I love you and I want your church to do well. And I know that financially you guys aren't in the best place you can be. And I know that you need more people in order, right? And we believe in the gospel message that you're preaching. So I want more people to come in and to hear that gospel message. And I know you're afraid of that sort of thing. Don't be. You guys need to start doing some kind of marketing. And I just listened to him very politely and I tried not to uh, interject with some of my concerns, the way a lot of that really feels like it comes from the business world, the way a lot of that just feels like the wisdom of the world more than the wisdom of God. But finally, when we were done, what I came back and said to him is I said, brother, maybe we'll do that, maybe we won't. But this is what I want to happen with our church more than anything. It's gonna be a lot slower. Instead of going from 30 people to 300 people in a matter of two or three years, if we ever get there, we'll probably go from 30 people to 130 people over the course of five to 10 years. But man, what a difference it'll make. What you win people with is what you win them to. We wanna win people with faithfulness and love and pray that as they come here, they will be rooted and grounded in that same faith and love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need your help today and every day, to go back out into this fallen world and live as you would call us to, on our jobs, in our schools, with our friends and our family members and our neighborhoods. So Father, we pray that you would glorify your name through this body. In the name that is above all names, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand. Sing together, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Praise to the Lord.